We're going to continue our reading through the book of 2 Peter for our weekly scripture reading. Last week we sidestepped and read from Romans chapter 6 since it was a, a baptism day, but today we will pick back up in 2 Peter and I won't give any commentary as I read through, but I should just say on the front end, this is some pretty heavy-duty stuff, you know. It, uh, it, I feel like I would really want to give some commentary here. It's dealing with false prophets and teachers, and Peter doesn't pull any punches. It was a real issue in the early church, in the beginning of the church, and it all the more is an issue today. And so we know that we have to be very wise, very discerning, very dependent upon God's spirit and God's word to know the truth and hold to the truth and not to be swayed from it, but to be on guard for false teachers and prophets are still moving amongst the Christians and God's church. And so let this be a warning to all of us that we heed and that encourages us to, to be very discerning. So this is God's word, Second Peter chapter 2, and it reads as follows. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials." and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will go also will also be destroyed in their destruction suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you they have eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin they entice unsteady souls they have hearts trained in greed Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from the wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. I have to comment. This is like way crazier than I even remembered. So, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome." The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment and deliver to them. What the true proverb says has happened. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow or sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to comment. Let me just summarize this for us. 
Peter is dealing with false teachers, false prophets in the church who are essentially in it for their own greedy gain. They twist the truth because they have an agenda. Their goal is to deceive, distort, and to basically plunder the people and to get from them what they can, whether it be wealth or even uh, being sexually promiscuous, uh, all of that. And they promise things that they cannot deliver. That's why they're told that they're clouds without water. You see a cloud and you think, thank you, Lord, rain is coming, but then no rain. That's what those false teachers were, promising something that they could not deliver. And they will by no means escape judgment. These things happen, but God sees it all. And God is very concerned for his people. And those who do these things in the church will be judged for it ultimately. So it's a, a call of caution, of warning for the purity of Christ's church, for us to be watchful and mindful of the people who would come in and try to pervert God's truth so as to uh, take advantage of God's people. Now, simply put, that's what just happened here. So, Amen. all right. Well, let's pray. Father, we love you. We are grateful that you are concerned for your church. We do know that we have a spiritual enemy, Satan, who hates you and hates your people and is working overtime to try to corrupt your church. And there are false teachers and false prophets among us today in the world that rise up and try to lead many people astray for their own selfish gain and benefit, for their own greedy lusts, Lord. And we have to be ever vigilant and mindful. We have to be people who know the truth, love the truth, embrace the truth, guard the truth, and share the truth. We have to be a people who are literate to the Word of God, to sound doctrine, who care deeply about wholesome, healthy, biblical teaching, and strive to live lives in accordance with that, O oh God. So help us, protect us as a church. Protect your church, your bride, locally and globally. Help us, Father, to have that passion for the truth. And that not only would we have that passion to know it, but that we would have that passion to live it, to be those who live in the light as you are in the light. Lord, we pray for the church abroad. We pray for our brothers and sisters that even in this very moment are suffering for their testimony, suffering for the gospel. I just heard this week that there are reports in North Korea of people getting caught with Bibles, being executed, and their entire families being thrown into prison for life. And so, Father, Lord, help them to suffer well. May your grace rest upon them. May they experience this perfect peace that the world cannot explain because you're with them. And they are witnesses to the truth, willing to lay even their lives down, God, just for possessing a Bible, something that we take for granted. We're able to gather here today to study the Word of God and to discuss it openly, freely, joyfully, and we have no fear of the police coming in and dragging us off to prison or executing us. And so, Father, we worship you. You're good, always good. You're with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. And so be with our brothers and sisters, wherever they may be today, who are so desperately in need of your strength and your help. Be exalted today, Father. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we love you, and we love the, the Bible. We love your word. Every word is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is profitable. It teaches us, it challenges us, it convicts us, it reveals more of who you are and what your heart is towards us and for our lives. And we believe that by your word and your Holy Spirit, we are changed from the inside out. Christianity is not just a bunch of rule keeping. It's not just trying to be a better person. It's being radically changed from the inside out and allowing your word, your living holy word, to do heart surgery on us and to shape our minds and our thinking and to inform our affections and our loyalty towards you, O oh God, and to equip us with all that we need to be able to live the Christian life in these very difficult times. So thank you for the gift, O oh God, that is your word. And that's why we open it. That's why we read it. That's why we seek to study and understand it and to apply it to our lives. And so, God, help us do that today. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher? Would you open our eyes and our hearts that we would understand these wonderful truths from the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John? What a magnificent text that is before us today. Oh, how privileged are we today to be able to read this together and to learn of you. So please, 
Meet us, meet us right where we are, meet our greatest needs in Christ. Please do this by your own grace and mercy. Do it for your own glory because you love us and for our own good and our own neediness. And so we humble ourselves before you and your word today and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. All right. Well, as I said, today we conclude John 21. I think it's been about two years that we've been going through this. That's way too long. And like I said, there were times where I would do one verse at a time. And uh, in the last, as of chapter 17, we just started doing chapter by chapter. I mean, sprinting through the gospel. And I'm enjoying covering it at a faster pace and getting more of the big picture. And uh, next week, God willing, we're going to go into the, the book of James. Short little epistle, five chapters, just absolute gold mine. And so I'm excited for us to go there together. And so, the Gospel of John, at the very end of chapter 20, we're given what is essentially an epilogue to the book, kind of a closing statement, if you will, a summary statement for the purpose of the book. It's so good when God does that in His Word, tells us plainly, this is what this is all about. This is what the book was written for. Don't miss it. Make sure that you get it. And He tells us that in chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Everything that has been recorded for us up to this point was for that purpose. All the miracles, all of the confrontations, all of the conversations, all of the teaching and preaching of Christ, everything that John selected was to this end so that you would have a thorough and adequate knowledge of who Christ is, what He came to do, but not so that we would just have knowledge, but so that we would believe, that we would believe in our hearts, and that as a result, we would have everlasting life. Amen? That is John's goal with the gospel. And he could have wrapped it up right there. He could have just said, amen, and that's the end of the gospel. But he doesn't. He adds one more portion of scripture. Now, of course, when John wrote the gospel, it didn't have chapter and verse headings. Those were added much later for our benefit so that we can navigate the Scriptures more quickly and readily and memorize Scripture more easily. But John just kept moving into the story. And John, as I have stated before, is about 90% new material that the other Gospels did not cover. Those Gospels were written much earlier. They're called synoptic gospels because they pretty much cover a lot of the same details from a different vantage point. But John, being written later, recognizes that those gospels are out. They've circulated. They've been around for a long time. And so by God's grace, we get more of a picture of what took place in Christ's ministry from the perspective of the apostle John. And one of the things that we see today in this chapter is something that is not given to us in any of the other books. We saw a couple of weeks ago how the Apostle Peter failed miserably, horribly. He was so sure. He said, Jesus, if you die, everyone else might leave you, everybody else might forsake you, but I won't. I will die with you. Remember that? And then Jesus said, you're going to deny that you even know me three times before the night is over. And that's exactly what happened. And when Peter remembered what Jesus said to him, he went out and he wept bitterly, just destroyed, devastated him. For he loved Jesus, he loved his Savior, but he was too confident in his own abilities and he could not, he couldn't do the very thing that he was so sure he could do. And so he was devastated. Well, praise God, the story didn't end there. And one thing that John tells us that the other Gospels don't is how Peter was restored. How Peter was forgiven, restored, put back into the ministry. And that's what we see particularly in this chapter before us today. None of the other Gospels 
uh, share this, but this one does, and it's a beautiful picture, and it's something that is so relevant to all of our lives. Our God is a God of restoration, amen? I mean, that ought to be great news for you. I don't know about me. Uh, I do know about me. I don't know about you. I would suspect that all of us in here have needed God to come in and fix our broken lives and to restore and put into place that which had been destroyed, uh, devastated, lost. But you know, when we think of restoration, and there's all kinds of shows out there that maybe some of, some of us love to watch where they restore furniture or houses or vehicles, maybe that you have an appreciation for that in your own life and that's a hobby for you, you take something and restore it to its former glory, Right? Jesus does so much more than that. He doesn't just put us back together the way that we were. He does a brand new thing. He changes us completely from the inside out, and then everything on the outside follows what's on the inside. And our new state is so much greater than the previous, the former. Amen? And so our God is a God of restoration. We see that in the heart of Jesus, and we see that in our text today. So with that, let's go ahead and look at John chapter 21, verse 1. It says that after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So we're told that after this, after these things, now what is that? Well, we know Jesus was crucified. He rose again from the grave three days later. Mary and the sisters came to the tomb and saw this, rushed to tell the disciples. The disciples came to the tomb and saw that it was empty. They were gathered back in the upper room, and Jesus was there. He just appeared in the upper room and said, Peace to them, showed them his hands and his side. And then he was gone again. And now the scene changes. They're no longer in Jerusalem. They're no longer in the southern part of Israel. They're now up in Galilee, the northernmost part of Israel. It's a very lush terrain. They're here at the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. And Peter is here with six of the disciples. Now, Judas is gone at this point. He went out, betrayed Christ, and we're told that he hung himself. And there were 11 disciples left, but out of those 11, we have seven of them here. Because not all of them were Galilean fishermen, a Galilean fishermen, but many of them were. And they're waiting on Jesus. They had been told to come to Galilee and to wait for Jesus. So while they're waiting, Peter says, I'm going fishing. That's what they always did. And so there they go. And the other disciples say, hey, we're going to go with you. And we're told that they caught nothing. Now... A lot is made of this that Peter said, I'm going fishing. And I think that there is probably something significant to this. And so I, I'm going to, some people say that this was very wrong for Peter, what he did. And some people say this was very right. And I'm not going to say it was very wrong or very right, but I'll explain what I'm, what I'm getting at, at here. What was their occupation? Fishermen, Exactly. When Jesus came and called them, what, he, what did he tell them he was going to do to them? He said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you fishers of men. That From now on, you're going to go out and cast God's net, and he's going to draw in people into the kingdom. He's going to draw people into the church through the gospel message, that they would be saved. And so that was going to be their calling in life, their occupation, if you will. And it's as Almost as if Peter is saying, I'm going back. You know, Jesus died. I, I betrayed. I abandoned. I denied even knowing him. And now I'm here, and I don't know what the future holds for me. So I'm just going to go back to what I knew. I'm just going to return back to that. Well, what happens, we're told here, when they go out and they fish all night long? What happens? They catch nothing. They catch nothing. 
Now, I will say this is very fascinating because this is very similar to Luke 5. This was how the disciples met Jesus. They were out fishing. They labored and toiled all night long, and they caught nothing. The next day, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to get into your boat, and they go out into the deep, and you may know the story, but I won't go any further into that, but it's almost like there should be deja vu at this moment because this sounds very similar to something that we have already read. Well, we're told that yet again, they caught absolutely nothing, and many people will say that's because they're trying to go back to something that God had called them out of. God said, this is not for you anymore. You've got to put your hands to the plow and keep moving forward. Don't try to go back. Don't return from where you came. There's nothing back there for you anymore. You will have no success in that. Now, that is such a huge principle for Christians because, oh, do we look back with longing eyes. We have very selective memories, and we forget the things that God has saved us from. We forget just how difficult life was, how horrible life was, all the devastation that was in our wake because of the people that we were, the decisions that we made, the lives that we chose to live, the rebellion against God that we persisted in. God in His grace and mercy saves us, changes us. We're so grateful to God for His goodness. We just love it. And then as time goes on, things kind of become mundane and normal all of a sudden, and you don't feel that fresh excitement and fire that you did. And all of a sudden, you start looking back with longing eyes to the past and thinking, that wasn't so bad. That was kind of fun, doing those things, hanging with those people. Life's kind of boring now, or whatever the case may be. How quickly do we forget from where God has rescued us? How easily do we return back from where we came? And I've said it a bunch of times, but isn't that exactly what we saw with the Israelites that God delivered out of Egypt? For 400 years, they were in this harsh bondage and oppression, and uh, they cried out to God, and God heard their cries, and He delivered them out with a mighty right arm and gave them victory, gave them freedom, and not long, what did they start doing? They started daydreaming about how good it was back in Egypt. And if only they were back there, well, that's us. We are those people. We're not any better than. We wouldn't do any different if we were in their situation. That is exactly what we do. But there's nothing back there for us, folks. And I watch people try to do this. I watch people come to faith. God changes them. It's amazing. And then they start trying to dabble in old things, old patterns, old habits and practices, even drugs and alcohol and, and sleeping around and things like that. And it is, it, it's horrible for them. It tortures their soul. They're new. That's not them anymore. They're born again. They have new desires, a new heart, a new identity, new affections. And the, it's totally incompatible with the old life. And yet we flirt around with old things don't we? We try to kind of mix those things together. We try to get as close to the old life as we can without actually doing it. Well, it never works. It doesn't work. And sometimes we just jump right back into it. Sometimes it's a slow, gradual process. None of us just wake up one day and decide to go do some horrible atrocity, but we start to compromise in little things. We start to toy around with little things, and then we toy around with something a little worse and a little worse, and we don't realize it, but we are sliding backwards. And then the next thing you know, we're so far away, we're back from where we came. Like Peter says, the dog that returns to his vomit, that's us. Well, it's very, very possible that that's what's going on here, and so they catch nothing. These are professional fishermen. They know how to fish. This was their livelihood. They go out, they catch absolutely nothing that night. Well, verse 4, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. 
Now, they would fish at nighttime for a couple reasons. One, if you were a fisherman, you would take the fish to the market when they're freshest and sell it so that they could sell that fish that day. So that would necessitate fishing at nighttime and then being prepared in the morning. So that's what they did, and they were out there all night, but no success. Now there's this, this man standing on the shore. They don't know who he is, but it's Jesus. Now this is... Um, strange to us because we're like why wouldn't they recognize him it's it's kind of dark still and he's off at a distance but this isn't the first time this has happened and it would appear that there's something rather different about jesus post-resurrection he he operates and functions in ways that he had not previously we know that he has the marks in his hands and in his side as he demonstrated to the disciples and thomas but at the same time, at times, people didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize him until their eyes were opened and he was revealed to them. And we'll essentially kind of see that happen here. But they don't know it's Jesus. Jesus is right there and they don't know it. I have to say that is true for us so often. We're struggling, we're stressing, we're straining, we're full of fear, we're full of doubt, we're full of discouragement. And it's as if we're all by ourselves, but Jesus is right there so often, and we don't even know it. We don't recognize it. But Jesus is with us, amen? He said he would never leave us, never forsake us. We can trust in his love and in his provision and in his protection, but that takes faith. It takes faith. Because sometimes it doesn't look like Jesus is there. It doesn't feel like Jesus is there, does it? Our feelings can be extremely uh, compelling. We can be led by our feelings and emotions. We can be controlled and convinced by our feelings and emotions. But you know what? Feelings will deceive us frequently. That's why the Bible is clear. Don't trust your heart. Do not follow your heart. The world loves to say that. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful. Easily deceived are we by our emotions and our feelings. But the reality is Jesus is with us always. And by faith we have to believe that. And we have to remind ourselves that. We walk by faith and not by sight. Amen? Jesus is with us. Jesus was with them. And they didn't even recognize it. So he says, okay, we'll cast the net on the other side of the boat. That's about a distance of seven and a half feet. So you got to like see the, the humor in this. They're fishing all night long in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says the problem is, is that your net was about seven and a half feet in the wrong direction. And so they cast the net, and now all of a sudden they catch, they have a catch so big they can barely even bring it in. They're not even able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. So it's very, very obvious now what's going on to the disciples. And so we see, verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. They knew now. And this was what happened in, I believe it's Luke 5, I was quoting Luke 5, that uh, Peter tells, Jesus tells Peter, he gets in the boat, says, cast out a little ways, Jesus preaches from a boat. It's kind of out in the water just enough so the crowd can't really get to him. And after he finishes preaching, he says, let's go out into the deep and cast the net. And Peter says, we've been out here all night. We've caught nothing, but at your word, I will do it. And then the same thing happens. They catch all of these fish and Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a, I'm a sinful man. Peter recognized that he was in the presence of deity that he was in the presence of the Son of God and that he was a sinful man. And, and that is such an appropriate response. And so it's kind of like a flashback to that. Here we are all the way back at the beginning. And you just have to see that as we walk through this, what Jesus is doing, how this is all set up, how this is designed to restore Peter. 
to bring about this magnificent restoration. So here they are back at the beginning. And I just love these moments when you know in your life this is the Lord. Have you had that experience where God does something in your life that is so unexplainable, that is so wonderful, you could not have ever seen it coming or expected it. There was no way. It's like streams in the desert. And all of a sudden it happens and you say, it's the Lord. I love it. The fingerprints of God in our lives. That's one of the blessings, one of the gifts of being in Christ and being known by God and to know God and to be in relationship with Him to see how God works in your life, how He intervenes, how He does things that are totally unexplainable. It's God's providence, God's kindness, God's goodness. How does a dead man find life? It's the Lord. How are broken relationships restored? It's the Lord. How can someone who has been absolutely torn apart in the bondage of addiction and and so many other patterns of sin be set free? It's the Lord. Amen? How does so many of these wonderful acts of restoration happen in our lives? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. He's our hope. He's the answer. It all goes back to Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. Well, verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And so even the net is miraculously kept from tearing. You see, even in that, there is a miracle taking place here. So Jesus already has a little spot set up for them on the shore. There's already a fire going. There's already fish on the grill with bread. And Jesus encourages them to come and bring some of their food and to put it with them, and they'll have breakfast together. Now, is there some significance to the 153 fish I've never really thought that there was, and probably maybe there's not. But I will just point out one thing that I kind of thought was interesting. Now, I, I fact-checked this to the best of my ability, uh, but who even knows? But I did find a number of sources that said things like, at that time, they believed that there were like 153 species of fish that were known and some of the early church fathers even went so far as to say that this was a picture of the fishermen who would become fishers of men who would be reaching out to every tribe, every nation, every tongue with the gospel, bringing in fish from all over the world. Dan's back there rubbing his head and stressing out a little bit. I can tell I'm making him uncomfortable. Uh, and so it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. I don't want to go getting all wacky with the Bible and, and making it say something that it's you know, probably not saying, but who knows? It's a fascinating thought to be sure, at the, and I will just leave it at that. Now, what I will say is taking place here is that in that culture, it was not a small thing to eat with another person. It, there was a lot of symbolism involved in this. It expressed communion with each other. You're both partaking of the same meal, and that one meal is ingested by two different people or more, and uh, in, a, in a sense, they see that as being one with one another. And so if someone has offended you or hurt you, you would not have a meal with them. If you did have a meal with them, what that is saying is, I forgive you, and I'm asking your forgiveness even. And that would actually be a method of restoration that would take place if somebody was, if two parties were, were at war with each other, so to speak, it may be that someone is going to have to humble themselves. Someone's going to have to say, okay, I'm sorry, and they're going to have to take the first step, and they would have a meal and the other person would essentially say, yes, I, I uh, receive your apology, or however that would go. But essentially, that's kind of what we see happening here. Jesus is dining with Peter, and I'm sure this is not lost on Peter. 
Now, another thing I'll point out is Jesus says, bring some fish. Now, Jesus didn't need their fish. Jesus could have easily had all the fish out there, obviously, that was needed to feed this whole group. But he says, bring, bring some of your fish. And I love this about Jesus, about the, the Christian faith. God doesn't need us, and he doesn't need anything that we have to bring, but he invites us. He invites us. He says, bring what you have and share it. Amen? And the reality is what they had came from him. What we have to bring to the table wasn't even ours in the first place. But God is so kind. He blesses us. He fills our lives. He gives us his salvation. He gives us his spirit. He gives us gifts. He gives us resources. He calls us to share those things in the mission and then he rewards us for using the very things that he gave us in the first place. Is that not amazing grace? Amazing grace. Such is the kindness, the goodness, and the grace of our God. Now, verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish... And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So even this phrase, none of them dared ask, who are you, indicates that there was something still very different about his appearance. Because they know this is the Lord, but there's still something there that causes them to be like, they want to ask, but they know better than to ask. And it's very obvious to them that this was the Lord. And we're told this is the third time now Jesus revealed himself. For about 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he was going about and revealing himself to his disciples. And this is the third time that that has taken place. Now, verse 15. This is where Jesus really zeroes in on Peter. And this, I would say, is really the center of the passage where I would want us to really set our focus the most. So... Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. So Jesus calls Peter out and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now we can't be sure what the these are. It is possible that there's this huge catch of fish here and the nets and everything and Jesus is saying, do you love me more than your former life? Do you love me more than your former occupation, your source of life and income? Do you love me more than that? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I do. It's possible that he's talking about the other disciples because that was kind of Peter's boast that was built into the statement when Peter said, everyone else will forsake you, Jesus, but not me. What's he saying? He's saying, I love you more. I love you the most. I alone would be willing to lay my life down for you, Jesus. And so it's like Jesus is asking him again, do you love me more than, more than these? We can't really be sure what Jesus is getting at here. But nonetheless, Peter's response to him is, yes, Lord, yes. Then Jesus says, well, then feed my lambs. Now, before I get into that, I'll, I'll come back, back to that in a moment. But there's some things that I want to kind of lay out before us at this juncture. Now, I talked about this last week, that in the, in the Greek, uh, there are, the language is so very different from our own language. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And I will often use love as a key example. There was basically five different words that they would use for love to describe different kinds of love. Storge, which is like a familial love, a love for your family. Brotherly love was phileo, which is um, the love of a friend, and a fond affection. Philadelphia, the city of brother lo brotherly love. There's eros, which is kind of a, an erotic love. Then there is um, agape, which is this ultimate kind of self-sacrificial, supreme kind of love. And there is another one, and I can never remember it. 
but anyway, suffice it to say that that helps us. Now, we just use love generically for everything. We love so many different things. And we would just say, I love this, I love that, I love this, I love that. And you know what I mean, we all do this. Well, there are different words being used here for love. Different words, and I think there's some significance to be found in this. Now, first off, they're not speaking Greek. They're speaking in Aramaic. And then this is recorded in Greek by the Apostle John, so I just want to be clear about that. But even still, I think that the sentiment of what was being expressed between John and uh, Peter and Jesus, the Holy Spirit just blew those papers off the stand over there. The Holy Spirit moved John to record these truths, and I don't think there was any accident in the language that was chosen to be used here. Now, some people would argue against that. There are plenty of people out there that know Greek far better than I who would argue against that, and that's okay. But there are others who do, and I just can't get past it. I really I see the significance of it, so I, I want us to see this together. So, and you wouldn't see this just in the, in the English language. Jesus said in verse 15, Simon, do you love me more than these? The word love there is agape. It's that supreme, sacrificial, committed love. Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. It's a, it's a brotherly love. It's a strong love, but it's, it's an effect, a love of affection, but it isn't agape. That's significant. I think what's going on here is that Peter has been humbled. Peter has been greatly humbled. He could say, I'll die with you, Jesus, but he knows better now. If Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these guys right here? He's not going to be so quick to say that now, is he? And so he's not really willing to go there. So Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Do you agape me? And he says, I, I phileo you, Lord. And then what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, well, you know what? If you don't agape me, then you're out. You're done. You know, he says, feed my lambs, tend my lambs, feed my lambs is what he says, care for his people. Well, in verse 16, he says it a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? Do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he said, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me. This time Jesus changes the word. It's like he's saying, do you, even, do you even have that for me, Peter? Do you even have that level of affection for me? And Peter, it says, was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter, Peter says he's grieved because Jesus keeps pressing this, and then he kind of drops the standard a little bit, and Peter says, look, Lord, you know me, you know me in all of my weakness, you know who I am, you know all things, I can't fool you, you have revealed to me who I actually am, and what I have to bring to the table, what I'm actually capable of. Peter loved the Lord, no question in my mind, did Peter love the Lord or what? I mean, he really paid a high price to follow Jesus, even up to this point. And his affection for Jesus is so obvious. But Peter knew better than to boast in himself. We need to have a, a healthy distrust of ourselves. We need not think too highly of ourselves. And he had been humbled greatly. Now, why did Jesus ask him three times? Any thoughts? Because he denied Jesus three times. And so it's like he's reversing this here, and he's giving Peter the opportunity to now confess him three times. And Peter gets honest. Peter is humble, and he says, Lord, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to boast in myself. You know all things. But I love you. He does love him. And Jesus doesn't take him aside and said, Peter, you know, I really wish I could use you, but you blew it, and you know it, and I just, I can't. Now, he could have done that, and they probably would have understood that and accepted that. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't do that. He says, feed my sheep. Now, that is huge. 
Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his sheep. He died. He gave his life for the sheep. He poured out his blood and suffered for the church, for the bride. Amen? And he said, now I'm entrusting them to your care. Serve them, love them, protect them, feed them, bless them, shepherd my flock. That's a huge, huge honor. It's a privilege. It's a very weighty thing that is being put on Peter and the apostles and to every pastor who pastors any church. We all know the weight of that, that command, that commitment. But Jesus says, I'm trusting you, Peter, to feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Now, that is so consistent. Our love has to have some action behind it. If we say that we love Jesus, then there ought to be something in our lives that demonstrates that. Amen? Jesus said, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. Okay, let me just go ahead and... uh, There we go. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we demonstrate our affection. Now, that's agape. Agape is a commitment. It's not so much a feeling. Sure, there's feeling involved, but we don't always feel like loving people, do we? We don't always feel like doing what we ought to do, what we know we're supposed to do. That's where agape comes in. Agape says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to serve you because... I understand who you are, I know what you have done for me, and I am committed to you. I'm giving you my life. That is agape. That's, that's the sacrificial, committed love. And that is love in its truest essence, because feelings come and go. That's the problem with marriage. People say, I just don't love so-and-so anymore. What you're saying is you don't feel those same feelings that maybe you once felt, and now that that's absent... I'm out. And that's a weak love. But agape says, I'm committed to the very end. I'm, I, I have committed myself to you. It was a covenant that I made, and I'm going to go the distance. And so Jesus says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter will die for Christ. He will die. And Jesus tells him right here how he's going to die. And he's telling him he's going to be crucified. That's what he's saying. When you were young, you were free, but there will come a point when you are no longer free. And you will be taken to a place where you do not want to go. And your hands will be stretched out. That is to say, stretched out and nailed to a cross. And history tells us, tradition tells us, that he was indeed crucified. And crucified upside down. Um, as it's it's said, because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that Jesus died. And so they hung him upside down. Jesus tells him this so that he would know what kind of death he was to glorify God. Glorifying God even in death. That's, That's a foreign concept for us. We love to glorify God in our comfort, don't we? I would like to glorify God in great security and prosperity. I can give God all the praise then. Amen? Look at what God has done. Praise Him. Right? Y'all, y'all ain't with me this, this morning. I done lost you. But to be able to glorify God in suffering, to be able to die to the glory of God, that's on some whole other level. That's, that's, that's otherworldly. That's something that only a person who understands the gospel and has been transformed by the gospel and is filled with the Holy Spirit could do. But that's, that's something that we can't do apart from God. But to recognize that we glorify God in life and in death. We glorify God in prosperity, but we also glorify God in suffering. Our testimony, it's all of that. Life and death, plenty and lack. It's all of that and every degree in between. 
whatever we are doing, wherever we are in life, whatever is going on with us, high or low, we are to glorify God, and we can glorify God. We can glorify God. So he says to Peter, follow me. Peter, you will follow me. You will follow in my steps. Take heart. As crazy as this sounds, you will die. He didn't die for Jesus before. He bailed. He got out of there. He denied Jesus. But there would come a time where he would go the distance, that he would stand for Christ to the very end. Well, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one also who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Now, this is John. So now we know that John is the one that wrote this gospel because uh, John refers to himself over and over as the one whom Jesus loved, but he never identifies himself directly. But we know that it was John that was leaning up against Jesus in the upper room, and Peter gestured to John to uh, find out who is Jesus talking about. Someone's going to betray him. You remember that? John chapter 13. And John asked Jesus, and Jesus said, it's the one to whom I dipped the bread. And he was sitting right next to Judas. Judas was in the guest of honor spot, and they dipped the bread together. And so we're connecting these dots now. So this disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, he often refers to himself as, was there as well. Jesus just told Peter what's going to happen to him. So what is Peter's response? Well, what about this guy? Right? Now, Peter is Peter. Peter's back in, the, back in action, and here he is being himself again. You've got to love that. And so he says, yeah, Lord, well, what about this guy? And Jesus says, when, when Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about this man? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come... What is it to you? You follow me. So there it is. Other people, and it's not our business. Don't be worried about the person on the right of you and on the left of you so much. Yeah, we're called, to, we're called as members of the body of Christ to love and encourage and even confront one another, right? But at the end of the day, we have to walk before the Lord. You have a commitment to Jesus there are expectations that follow a person who has committed their life to Jesus. You have a calling. You have a path that doesn't necessarily look like anybody else's. You have resources. You have giftings. You have things to offer, and you have to answer for that. Follow Him. Amen? Don't worry about what other people are doing. Don't worry about what's going on in the world. You ain't going to be able to point to any of that when you stand before the Lord. It's just going to be you standing before the throne giving an account what did you do with what God gave you while you were here on this earth? What did you do with the knowledge that God so graciously allowed you to receive while you were here on this earth? Follow Jesus. Amen? You guys, you are not my servants. You're servants of, of God, and I'm a servant of His too. God knows how to deal with His own servants. Amen? And so God's going to deal righteously with His own servants. We all have a responsibility follow Jesus. Are you following Him? Are you following your Savior? Are you following your Lord? I talk about this. He's our Lord and our Savior. To be a Christian means that not only have you received the forgiveness of God, Jesus is your Savior because He died and rose again for our sins in our place, but He's also our Lord, which means that we've repented of our sins, we've turned from our old ways, and now we are following Him. He is our Master. He is our Lord. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I tell you to do? If He is our Lord, then we are going to follow Him. We are going to seek to be like Him. We are going to seek to walk in holiness even as He is holy. We're going to seek to turn away from our sin as difficult as it may be. And the battle rages on, does it not? Do we not all struggle with sin? Do we not all fall short? Is the battle not always so very fierce? But is there a battle? Is there a battle? Are you fighting sin? Are you, as a follower of Christ, making every effort to walk in His ways and to repent and to confess and to draw close to your Savior? Are you following Jesus? Follow Him. 
So verse 30, it says, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? John was the only one of the disciples that didn't die a martyr's death. All of the other disciples were killed in horrible ways. Uh, crucified, beheaded, speared to death. I mean, it, it gets even worse than that. A lot of other really heinous stuff. But John was the only one that died as an old man of natural causes. And he had been persecuted greatly, but still didn't die. And so, evidently, people were connecting these dots. This statement that Jesus made to Peter, and the fact that John's the only one living, and they're like, he's not going to die. And so John's like, just let me clear something up right now. That's not what Jesus said, and that's not what's going on here. But basically, he was saying to Peter, what, what business is it of yours what I do with this person? Now, verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there it is. John says that uh, Jesus did so many things that he could never even begin to really put all of them into a book. But these things that we have for us are a timeless treasure, something that was given to us by the Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us to the truth of who Jesus is Amen? And there it is. There's the Gospel of John. So I want to say, I, I hope that if you're here today that you have heard and that you have believed. It's really just that simple. It's, it's so simple that a child can understand it. It's so complex and deep that the deepest thinkers in this world could never really plumb the depths in a thousand lifetimes. But it's so simple. God so loved the world God so loved the world that he paid such a high price to purchase those who were dead spiritually, who were in bondage, slaves to sin, that were separated from God because of our transgression, which was all of us. That was all of us, and maybe even still some of us in this room right now. That's our, that's our condition. God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to live that life that we have failed to live a thousand times over. He alone did it. Amen? He is our champion. He alone lived a life that was perfectly pleasing to God. And then he suffered a sinner's death. He died on the cross, and God's wrath, the Father's wrath, was poured out on the Son, the wrath that we deserved, so that we would have eternal life. Christ took our punishment. Christ took our punishment in our place. And it is our gift of life if we trust in Christ, if we call upon his name. If we say, yes, Lord, I agree, I am who you say I am. I'm a sinner. You don't have to convince me of that. I know that. And I have sinned against you and your goodness. I have rejected you. I have not believed you. But I believe that you're good and that you gave your son to die in my place so that I could live. Forgive me, Lord. I want Christ. Jesus, will you be my Lord? Will you be my Savior? I want to turn away from this old life. I want new life. I want a new heart. I need your Holy Spirit. All of that comes by believing. Believing in your heart. These things are true. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Amen? It's as, it's as close and as simple as that. Believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God and that we really do need the forgiveness that He alone can bring, and that we will submit to Him as our Lord and our Savior and follow Him, because His ways are so much better than ours. Are they not? Is the life in Christ not a thousand times? It's, you can't even quantify it. You can't qualify it. It's, you can't compare the two. The life that we have in Christ and the life that is to come cannot be compared to what we had before. Amen? And so if you don't know Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, then just right now, where you sit in your heart, just believe. Believe. Believe the truth and bow your hearts to the Lord. Amen? All right, well, let me pray for us. Father, we love you.
We praise you, O oh God. We thank you. You're so incredibly kind. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for the work that you've done in and through this church as we have studied it over the last couple of years. We give you glory, Father, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.